Amen. Happy feast. Bread and cook. Happy feast. Happy feast. The feast of the Mother of God we're celebrating and also the feast of Joachim and Anna. It's also the first feast of the ecclesiastical new year. And it's also an important feast. All feasts are important. When we have a party, it's always important, but it's quite intriguing that the church should, for its first feast of the ecclesiastical new year, pick on perhaps the most controversial, certainly in the Western tradition, the most controversial character in Christianity, and that's Mary, the mother of God. The first feast we celebrate is not peculiarly a feast of Christ. It's not a feast of Jesus. Even though, actually, on every Sunday we celebrate a feast. Some of you may be not thinking that it's much of a feast, it might just be another Sunday morning. But we must remember that every Sunday is the eighth day of God's creation. Every Sunday is the presence of Christ. And every Sunday is the day of resurrection. So every day, every Sunday is a feast. You'll notice that because during the weekdays, if there's a liturgy and during some of the prayers, people will kneel down, but they never kneel down on a Sunday. This is a day of resurrection, a day of joy. But of the 12 great feasts we celebrate first in the new year is the Nativity of the Mother of God. And on this day, the synaxis or the coming together of Joachim and Anna. Anna, of course, is our patron. How do we understand this? Now, hands up, how many of you have picked up and read a bit of the Bible this week? Well, a few. How many of you have brought to mind, you don't have to pick up a book these days, how many of you have thought about the scriptures today? Or this week, some of you may be today thinking, yes, it's Sunday, it's that day that I'm holy, I must think about the scriptures on my way to church. How many of you have picked up and read the new, the, sorry, the first gospel of St. James? Nobody. And that tells us, how many own a copy of the Proto-Evangelium of St. James. Ooh, one or two people. There's a hands up who actually does know what the new gospel of St. James is. It's not very many. Yet where do we get the story of Joachim and Anna? How do we even know about the upbringing, the young years of Mary, the mother of God? Where does that come from? From the Bible, I hear you say. No, I don't. Because <laughs> it's not in the Bible. It's not in the canon of the Bible. It's not in the book that we pick up every day. I'm sure you all do pick up that Bible every single day and flip through it and put it back down again. It's not in that part of the Bible. And that causes us a bit of a problem because it's still a vitally important piece of Scripture, but nonetheless, it's not preached. Even the Proto-Evangelium of St. James could be uh, set for today, couldn't it? Because it's all about the uh, birth of Mary and even the first few years of Jesus' life. Wouldn't you think? You really want to know what happens. Because in the Gospels and in the Scriptures that in the Bible that I hold every, every time we have a service, all that happens is Jesus is born 
And then there's a bit of a gap, and then suddenly he's wandering around as a, as a young boy of 10 or 11. And the bit in the middle is completely missing. And the Gospels tell us almost nothing about Mary. We have literally said the two Gospels. Those two Gospels are pretty much all there is that is told about Mary. So who is Mary? <coughs> who is Anne and Joachim? Who are they? But also added to that story, that question, is who is Jesus? And therefore we can add to the top of that set of ladder of questions, is who is God? If we ask ourselves the questions in that order, we are starting to head in the right direction. Who are Joachim and Anne? Because we have a relic of Anne here. We venerate Anne, she is our patron. Who is Joachim? Who is Mary? What is she to us? Who is Jesus? What is he to us? And ultimately, if we're able to ask those answer those questions, we're able to answer an even bigger question. What is God? Who is God? What is God to us? Who is God to us? So our understanding of even this feast has to be looked at through one particular set of glasses. And those who are parishioners here for a long time, remember that I always refer to sets of glasses that we wear. For the grown-ups, what we're using here is what's known as a hermeneutic device, a way of looking. Because if we look at the scriptures, it tells us nothing about today's feast. And many people just say, it's not in the Bible, don't do it. You shouldn't be doing stuff like this. You shouldn't be wearing vestments, you shouldn't be venerating Mary, the mother of God. You shouldn't have anything to do with Anna, because she's not in the scriptures. She's not in the Bible. But yes, she is. Not in the Bible, but she is in the scriptures. And therefore we have to set certain glasses on so that we can see one important person. And every time we try and learn something about our faith and learn something about the church, we must be very careful that we are using the right set of glasses and we're looking in the right direction. What direction ought we be looking in? To whom should we be looking? Jesus Christ. I think you said Jesus Christ. I'm sure I heard you say in your hearts that everything in our faith is Christological, focused on Jesus Christ. Many of us were brought up with Gideon translations of the Bible and the NIV. And in many of those translations, you'll find at the back or the front of the book, I can't remember exactly, lists of scriptures for certain scenarios in your life. And I was always blessed by them, but always slightly faintly worried about them. Because I was always quite concerned about for whom were the scriptures written. And of course the scriptures are written for me, for you, for everybody. But what, who are the scriptures actually about? The scriptures are actually about Jesus Christ. So all of those scriptures, even the ones that are aimed at me, should be about my relationship with Christ. And if we just read the Bible to find out, oh, how should I make a decision in my life? I have difficulties at school, um, so I need to find something in Scripture that will tell me about how I should act about those script problems at school. There's a problem with that whole sentence is that it's all about me and it's not about Jesus Christ. So when we read Scripture, we need to understand who is it about. And that tells us one thing about the way in which we should understand today's feast is the gospel, the canon of the gospels. The book that I hold up now, the book that Peter reads from, is known as the canon 
of the scriptures. That canon, the books, the texts that are in it, were not decided and, and finished off until sometime in the 13th century. They have grown up as a treasure of our church. And they are chosen to be in the Bible because they tell us about Jesus Christ. Okay? There are also lots and lots of other books, texts. The Proto-Evangelium of St. James appears 150 different copies of the Proto-Evangelium of St. James. 150 different copies. The Gospel of St. Uh, John, the Gospel of St. Mark, the Gospel of St. Luke, there are probably, I can't remember exactly, a half dozen copies left in the world of the original texts. Not the original text. There is no one original text. There are lots of original texts that are all cobbled together, collected together, and stitched together into what we consider to be one book. But there are also lots of other stories, poems, letters, and epistles, and gospels that were written around the same time. The letter of St. Clement, for example, which was preached in church out of a text as we would today. The Proto-Evangelion of St. James is written sometime about 150 to 200 years after Christ's resurrection. So fairly early. But it's not really referred to, and the Feast of the Mother of God is not really referred to until about 600 AD, when it's first directly referred to. It doesn't appear in the Gospels, doesn't appear in our scriptures, because it's not really about Jesus. Is it historically accurate? Who knows? We don't know. Does it matter? Not a bit. It could be that this book arises out of a desire, a need for the people of God to know what happened in the early days. How did Mary come to be in the temple? How did Joachim and Anna come to give birth to Mary? Who is she? Where did she come from? What happened to Jesus when he was a little boy? Those questions come up and maybe someone wrote them down. Maybe they were inspired by God to write them down authentically and true. Maybe they came out of an oral tradition. We have no evidence whatsoever. But the evidence we do have is the Orthodox Christian Church all the way through the centuries from the 6th century onwards has had a feast of the Mother of God and has taken the Proto-Evangelion of St. James and not preached it from the Gospels, from the Scripture, but has lived it. Has lived this. Has created a hymnography that we heard with the Troparian Contacchia that the choir have sung just at the entrance. That they have had a celebration of the Mother of God. They have icons that depict these stories. I'm sure you've heard all these stories all before. If you haven't, you should put your hand up right now. If you don't know who uh, Joachim and Anna are, put your hand up. Good, everyone knows the whole story, so I can skip over that bit. But Joachim and Anna, ordinary people, ordinary people of the 12 tribes of, God, uh, of, of Israel, barren, unable to have children, miraculously give birth by the grace of God, by the love of God, by the healing of God, give birth to Mary. And they put, give Mary the firstborn child, their only born child, in 
to the consecrated life within the temple, serving in the temple, that she grows up just like you and me, but she grows up living in a temple. We know the rest of her story. If we don't know the rest of the story, hang around for about nine, 12 month, nine to 12 months, and you'll hear the rest of the story unfold. As Mary gives birth to the Son of God. But who is the Son of God? In the epistle, we have... I'm taking out my phone because my notes are on the phone. Not the guy I'm checking Facebook, but as it happens, uh, it is on Facebook. Um, the translation of the first epistle. We heard the translation about Jesus Christ. That first epistle was about who Jesus Christ is. And if you'd be so kind, can you pull that back out and rest that text? Although he, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God to be a thing that is grasped. You heard the version, the King James Version, who in the form of God thought it not to be robbery to be equal with God. Who is this Jesus Christ person? Is he God? If he is God, how is he incarnate? What happens to Jesus? How is it that Jesus is actually God? Brothers and sisters, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in the fashion of man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This is who Jesus is. In the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now in one translation, it's a thing that cannot be grasped, a thing that cannot be reached out and taken, or even an idea that cannot be understood in the modern English sense of the word grasped, as thinking and understanding. But in the King James Version, it's not robbery, it's not stolen. Jesus has not stolen part of the divinity of God. But he was in the form of God. Now, the English word form is very poor. The Greek word here is morphe. Those of you who are studying geography at school may have heard the word morphological, where we get maps from. Morphological represents the shapes of the hills and the rivers as they get higher and lower down into the river. Your morphology of your face is if a blind person was to touch your face and they would be able to feel the bumps and nooks and crannies and the creases and the hair and everything else, your makeup that's on your face. So Jesus is the morphine, the morphology of God. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus is just the facial part of God. It's not the face of God, not a mode of God or a particular type of presentation. But he is, in Greek, the morph word morphine means more than that. Because each one of you look different. Each of you have different features. And those features, those who, who like their forensic science will know, those features are all based on your skull. They all start with the shape of your skull. How high your cheekbones are, how long your jaw is, how strong your chin is. So all of your features, even the soft squidgy bits, are all based on a superstructure, 
called your skull. And therefore, we can think of Jesus as a bit like this, as God is the superstructure, is the skull, and Jesus is the skull, but also the skull with a face. That the features of Jesus Christ, how he acts, how he is with people, how he responds to people, is God, but God made, important word here, manifest. That's one that really only ever used now in the church, making something manifest. Nowadays the word manifest is just something, a piece of paper that you put in when you're loading up a big van full of cargo to head somewhere and they fill in the form called the manifest. And that's not what we mean. We mean something that is hidden is made visible. In the same way as the shape of your skull is made visible through your face. No matter what you do with the squidgy bits, no matter what the, uh, uh, the surgeons do with the squidgy bits, you are still essentially you, and recognisably you, unless you remove your skull and replace it with somebody else's skull. And then you become someone entirely different, don't you? If your head's been cut off and you've got another head on. So Jesus, St. Paul, is telling us, Jesus isn't just a nice man. Jesus isn't just a person or God walking around inside what a ghost of a human being but Jesus is authentically and truly the manifestation of God in the world. We hear that Jesus comes from human beings. Jesus is born from the family of Joachim and Anna. Joachim and Anna are ordinary people. Through the grace of God, they are given, give birth to Mary, who is an ordinary human being like you and I. And Mary becomes pregnant with Jesus. And she gives birth to a human being. And it's very easy for us to go walk around and say, mm, okay, that's a very human story. That makes Jesus no different from us. And that's true. Jesus is no different from us. Or to turn it on its head, we are no different from Jesus Christ. But we could look at the story from the other side and say, God is unknowable. God is awesome. God is beyond space and time. And we can't possibly know God. His ways are totally different from us. And we can't possibly understand what it is to be God. Yet God interferes, invades his creation and chases you and pursues you and guides you and loves you and reaches out to you not just you individually, but to us over the centuries, making himself visible to us, to the point that he then becomes visible to you through Jesus Christ, through a human being. The meeting of God and human being are vitally important to our Christian story. And we will see that unpacked little by little over the next nine to twelve months as we follow the story of Jesus. But Jesus says something quite extraordinary at the end of those, both of those Gospels. Martha and Mary are sitting uh, are at the house with Jesus, and Martha is busy doing the things that are necessary in life, getting on and being an adult. Whereas Mary is prevaricating, sitting down at Jesus' feet, listening to Jesus. And Martha comes up and says, come on, we've got stuff to do. 
She couldn't say the washing machine's finished and we need to put the tumble dryer on, but she said pretty much the same thing. We've got stuff to get on with, and what you're doing is just <coughs> sitting down and listening to this man. <coughs> and Jesus says to Martha, you are careful, and you are troubled about one many things. But there's one thing that's needful. One thing. And Mary has followed that one thing. And that will not be taken away from her. And as he was talking, somebody else shouted out, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breast that fed you, the mother that fed you. Of course, we do say that, don't we? Blessed art thou, mother of God. Of course, Mary is blessed. But Jesus corrects us and says, Yes, indeed, blessed are those that hear the word of God and keep it. And therefore, Jesus puts Mary in her place, in the right place. We always make sure that the mother of God is in the correct place. And again, later on, Jesus is telling us about not putting your candle, your light, your beauty, the knowledge and wisdom of God um, that is in you under a, a bowl or under the table or under the bed. He tells, put it out so people can see it. But someone says, your mother and brothers are outside and they want to see you. Brothers of Jesus. That's another one of those things that comes from outside the scriptures that can trip people up. Many of you have lived through... Um, many versions of the scriptures that, or very many stories and fake histories that people have tried to create over the last 20 or 30 years where Jesus goes on to have another family uh, uh, and gets married to Mary Magdalene and, and then there's a whole generation. Yes? And that's picked up of some of these texts that are a bit off. They're not right. And that's why they're not in the scriptures. When they're about Jesus and they're incorrect, they're not in the scriptures. So when we look at the Proto-Evangelion of St. James, it's not in the book, canon of the Bible. We could just say, it's like all those. Get, let's get rid of them. But it's not. It's not like those texts that, and to be ignored. The Gospel of St. James is part of our tradition. It's embedded as part of our tradition. But the story of uh, Jesus getting married, married, married to Mary Magdalene and having a whole generation of children, that's not in our tradition, is it? And therefore, that scripture we can put aside because it's not a story that happens within our church. And the same happens here, where we say some people have interpreted this line to say that Mary did not remain a virgin for the rest of her life, that she went on and had children with Joseph. And therefore, Jesus has a family, a biological family. God has a brothers and sisters, biological family. And therefore, somewhere amongst you is a direct descendant of the brother of Jesus. That is the implication. But we know, from the Proto-Evangelion of St. James, we know that Joseph was a widower. We know that Joseph was significantly older than Mary. Joseph was technically beyond childbearing age, as it were. He was a safe bet within which to marry Mary. She was a consecrated virgin of the temple. When she had her period, she could no longer remain in the temple and therefore should marry. And therefore it was engineered, it was planned, that Mary should marry an older person, a man who would protect her rather than be her husband 
in the knowing sense, adults, you know what I mean. So Joseph has already got a family. He's a widower. He's an older man, maybe in his 60s or 70s. And these are the people that are being referred to here, the brothers of Jesus by marriage rather than by biology. Let me come back to my original point. Jesus corrects Mary and Martha and corrects us to put Mary in her place. And someone shouts out again, your mother and your brothers and sisters stand outside to see you because they can't get in. And Jesus responds, my mother and my brothers and sisters are those that hear the word of God and do it. Again, putting Mary very carefully and the brothers in the correct place. When we look at this icon, how many of you would have been a little bit discomforted and uncomfortable if when you came in this morning this icon was here on my left? Yes, I think quite a lot of you would have come in and gone, something's not quite right. I don't quite know what it is, but it's not quite right. Because even though you may never have been told this rule, it's always been part of your life in the church. That Jesus Christ always stands on the right-hand side, on your right hand. And the Mother of God, Mary, is always depicted on the left-hand side. Always. Even if we came in and there were two squares and the icons have disappeared, there are two squares, one of which had blue and a little bit of red on the right-hand side, another one had red with a little bit of blue on the right-hand side, you'd know that it was a sacred space. In your mind, in your heart, you would be setting them up as being icons of the Mother of God and Christ Pentecost. The very shape of this building is designed to speak to you in the same way as the scriptures speak to our mind, the icons in this place speak to your heart. If you go into a place and find there's no icons, let's say you went into a square room like this and there were no icons, you'd be standing around moving backwards and forwards like a character out of a film going, which way do I stand? Do we stand facing each other or what? So the shape of the community help us to structure our own lives. You are learning just by being here today, even if you don't remember a word I said, which is probably quite likely. But the, the fact of the actions, the things that you've done, how you have lived the gospel, how the community has lived the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that is the thing that reads into your hearts, reads into your muscles, so that you become not just readers of the gospel, but hearers of the gospel and doers of the gospel. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.